You are now rocking with a jazz hammer. Rock behind the climb, it's the pod to be. Talking about climbing and G, a la G. Crimps, jugs, and splitter cracks. I got an explanation for all of that. Jazz have the MC out in Cali, but this week we headed off to Joe's Valley. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I've been on a little bit of an old school rap kick lately. But you know, coming back strong after the brief hiatus. Alright, <laughs> hello everyone. Welcome to the Rock Behind the Climb. I am the one and only Jazz Hammer, Quinn Todzo. Now, this episode of The Rock Behind the Climb marks a big step. Finally, after three months, I have made it outside of California into another state. This episode, I hit the road for the country of Mormons and mountains. That's right, Utah, baby. And specifically to one of the more hyped and well-known bouldering spots in the United States, Joe's Valley. So, a little over a month ago, I took a road trip to Utah and explored a number of areas in west-central Utah, actually with the recommendations from a listener of this podcast. So, as an aside, keep those wrecks coming. Well, Utah, surprise, surprise, is a pretty huge state, and I had a somewhat limited time, so I couldn't really do a full tour of what Utah has to offer. However, from my first taste of climbing at some of the different spots, I can say without a doubt that I would like to go back soon. While there, I climbed in three very different areas, climbing-wise, geology-wise, and just general surrounding area-wise. I first stopped at the incredibly prominent and crazy-looking quartzite Ibex crags way out in the West Desert. I then traveled to Joe's Valley and finished off climbing on some of the really fun granitic boulders in the Little Cottonwood Canyon just outside of Salt Lake City. All three locations were interesting and fun in their own right, and I may well come back and talk about Ibex and the Little Cottonwood Canyon in later episodes. However, on this episode, I'm focusing on Joe's Valley. From its popularity and prominence in the climbing community to the very interesting surrounding geology, and most importantly, the incredible time I had climbing there, I'm really excited about this episode. I spent two and a half days climbing in Joe's with my friend who did the road trip with me, and I still felt like I hadn't really scratched the surface in terms of exploring all that Joe's has to offer. Even for someone like me, who can't really climb more than a V2 or V3, there were more than enough awesome and fun routes to work on and do. So, for those who don't know, Joe's Valley is a world-class bouldering area in central Utah, located about two and a half hours south of Salt Lake City, near a small town called Orangeville. The actual main bouldering areas are about 20 miles west of Orangeville. At first, the topography seemed a little bit flat and uneventful, and I kind of wondered to myself how there could possibly be a world-class rock climbing area in this flat region. However, as we continued to drive up Route 29, which follows the Cottonwood Creek, 
the Joe's Valley walls began to rise on both sides of the river. Before long, we came to the famous fork in the road slash river, which denotes the two classic climbing areas, the aptly named left and right forks. The Joe's Valley bouldering area is located partially within Manti LaSalle National Forest and on land owned by the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM for short. On the National Forest side, you have the Left Fork boulders, which are located along the Left Fork of the Cottonwood Creek. There are over 150 problems on this three-mile stretch of road that leads to the Joe's Valley Dam and Reservoir, which provides drinking water for the surrounding area. On the BLM side, you have the Right Fork boulders, which follow the right fork of the Cottonwood Creek, which was just a dried up wash while I was there. On this four mile stretch of road, there are over 300 listed climbs before eventually arriving at the Fossil Rock coal mine. The right and left fork climbing areas are really close together and this makes for a huge range of boulders and sub areas that together make up this climbing spot. There's also a third area that I did not have the chance to check out while I was there called New Joe's, which is somewhat separate from the right and left forks. While I didn't have a chance to make it out to the New Joe's climbing area, from what I've seen, it follows the same geologic formations and features that I'll talk about in a little bit. All in all, there are a lot of boulders in this small, confined area. On our trip here, we began by driving up the left fork, and this area is just crazy. You're just in the midst of these high 300-foot valley walls with giant sandstone boulders lining the way up the road. To your left, you have the actively flowing Cottonwood River, which boasts a number of great boulders along its banks. And to your right, a ton of little paths up the side of the valley that lead you to even more bouldering spots. I think also that one of the greatest aspects of this area is that, at least on these stretches of road, the only activity and people that you really see are people bouldering. And the local climbing organizers have really done a phenomenal job at morphing this area into the perfect dirtbag climber zone. From the roadside campsites, to the well-marked trails leading to the boulders, to the clear, flat landing zones. I tip my hat to those from the Access Fund and the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance who have created and preserved this area because it is really a climber's paradise. Anyway, with so many exciting climbs just waiting for us on the side of the road, our first move, of course, was to drive up the left fork past all the bouldering zones in the valley and up to the reservoir for a pre-climb run. First things first, right? As it turns out, there are very nice ATV trails with mild enough grades for nice running. But on this run, we found a single track trail that led us basically right up the canyon walls. <laughs> While this run was somewhat disastrous and we only made it like five miles in the span of like an hour, it really gave me a sense of the geology of this canyon up close. At the start of our run, at the bottom of the valley, we ran through a mostly soil-exposed region with 
a lot of plants and such. Then the path cuts up into a very intact sandstone region where the trail actually had to be carved into the stone. After traveling through that area, the path once again entered a region that was mostly soil. Once the trail got to the top of the valley wall, it started to disappear, so we had a hard time making it back down. However, the point is that there is this very steep sloping valley with an intact sandstone layer sandwiched between two soil layers. Lucky, Luckily for you, though, you don't need to make the trek up this treacherous single-track trail by the reservoir to come to this conclusion. Just looking out at the walls of the valley on either the left or the right fork, you can clearly see a band of intact vertical sandstone sandwiched between 240 or so degree sloping soil valley walls. In fact, I actually noticed a few bands in certain places of intact sandstone rock interbedded with what looked like soil. Anyway, after our ill-fated run up the side of the canyon, we went to one of the most iconic boulder problems in the entire valley, the Angler. This boulder is located right on the bank of the Cottonwood Creek River in the aptly named Riverside Boulders area and follows this shelf or rail angled at about 45 degrees going up the side of the boulder. I've attached a photo of me on this climb because it was spectacular. It started pretty difficult because there is little in the way of footholds and the shelf that you climb up starts pretty slopey. However, the shelf gets progressively easier to cling onto as you get higher, and finally, you reach a couple pockets that help you get to the top. Crazy thing was, though, that right next to this awesome problem, there were a ton of other V1s to V3s that were super fun and interesting, all with their own sets of defining features. But, you know, none quite as prominent as the angler rail. The texture of the rock is not particularly harsh like a granitic rock, but is very well cemented and intact. In fact, there was no point during my time in Joe's where I feared that a piece might fall off. Aside from the great rock quality, which was a pleasant surprise given how soft sandstone can be sometimes, there was little in the way of uniform holds or features on this rock. There were all types of holds from crimps to jugs to slopers, as well as all kinds of different climbs, from sub-vertical slab climbs to overhanging problems. Other than that, the rock just looks really cool. A lot of the boulders have this very noticeable black and yellow striping that make the boulders look really unique. Also, the river and valley wall landscape makes for some very aesthetic photos and beautiful views while climbing. However, what I think is the most special part of this area, and what made it so great, is just the sheer number of boulders and boulder problems at all grades. So, I'm going to get into that first. Where in the heck did all these perfect boulders 
come from? Well, as you may have guessed, they came from Mars, of course. <laughs> no, these boulders originated on the canyon walls and rolled down the side of the valley to wherever their current resting place is. But why? Well, to answer that, we're going to have to go back in time. So, way back, like, 66 million years ago, at the end of what the geologists call the Cretaceous Period, is where we first start seeing outcropping rock on the side of Joe's Valley. Just as a quick aside, the oldest rock here is at the bottom, and the rock gets younger as you go up the valley wall. Anyway, 66 million years ago was a time period where Joe's Valley was actually underwater, but very close to the shoreline. As I have talked about in other episodes, the shoreline changed with respect to gradual sea level rise and fall, meaning that Joe's Valley was constantly fluctuating between being slightly underwater or slightly above water. Geologists call this a shallow marine environment. The way they know that is by A, looking at the fossils scattered throughout the formation, and B, looking at the different rock types in the formation and where they are in relation to one another through a science called stratigraphy. Now, it is unlikely that you will find any fossils while you are out there, but the changes in rock types are very apparent when looking at the hillside. So, starting from the bottom, we have the so-called Blackhawk Formation, which is a direct indication of the shallow marine environment. In this area, we see a lot of mudstone, shale, some sandstone, and coal. The mudstone, shale, and sandstone often get deposited in areas underwater where there isn't too much wave energy. So you can allow for the smaller clay particles to settle out. Then, when the sea level lowers, the area that was once completely underwater now becomes a more swampy lagoon where organic material can mix with the sediment to create the carbon-rich coal beds. I'm sorry if that was a bit confusing, but I find this topic to be particularly fascinating. Geologists literally follow and map different formations over huge expanses of area, looking for elevations of the different beds to connect the dots and see how areas like central Utah looked millions of years ago and how they changed over time. I've linked a few of these sources in the episode notes, but fair warning, they are a little dense. It does beg the question, if there are all these rock types supposedly outcropping on the bottom of the valley, how come all we see is soil along the base? Well, soil is really just broken down rock. So in large part, the soil is just eroded from the rock that used to be there, which is important. However, from the roadside, there are places where you can see outcropping coal beds and mudstone that make up part of this Blackhawk formation. I have linked a photo of what this looks like in my photo album of the area. Okay, so on top of this formerly shallow marine Blackhawk formation of highly erodible shale, mudstone, and coal, 
above all that, we have the prominent Castlegate Sandstone, which constitutes the formation of rock that makes up the actual boulders that we climb on. The Castlegate Sandstone makes up the intact cliffs that start midway up the valley walls in about 20 to 40 foot thick bands that stretch on for miles. In some areas, you can only see one of these bands, but in others, I noticed two or three sandstone bands separated by other layers of, of soil. The Castlegate sandstone is interesting because the grains that make up the rock were deposited in an entirely different environment than the Blackhawk formation below. The Castlegate sandstone was actually formed as a result of a series of river channels that deposited the sand on their banks. Rather than the sand grains being mixed in with a hodgepodge of shale and mudstone like the Blackhawk formation, the sandstone is pretty well separated from the other fine grain rocks. In fact, the Castlegate formation in general is assumed to have little to no clay particles mixed in with the sand and is made up of primarily hard, weather-resistant quartz minerals. This is what makes the Castlegate Formation particularly intact and hard, the fact that it is composed of a lot of quartz and not very much mud. However, I did see some mudstone caked onto the outside of some of these sandstone boulders, particularly in the boy-size sub-area, which in turn created mud cracks and eventually fun, crimpy problems. Back on the valley wall, above the castle gate, the environment went back to being a shallow marine and consists of more highly erodible mudstone and shale. So putting that all together, we have the highly erodible shallow marine rocks above and beneath the sandstone. So as they erode, the sandstone blocks just kind of fall out. The sandstone then rolls down the side of the valley, and wherever it rests, it becomes a potential climbing boulder. Since it is a hillside and these boulders can fall randomly, you can get all kinds of final orientations for these boulders, even if they are mostly rectangularly shaped. They can feature overhanging roofs, sub-vertical slabs, or both. From this point, it is a bit random how other holds and features get formed. I mentioned the mud cracks creating crimps on some of the boulders, but for the most part, it is random weathering patterns that create the cracks and holds on the rock. Either way, because the stratigraphy of Joe's Valley is consistent across the right and left forks, as well as I presume the new Joe's area, you just have a massive potential for so many boulders and climbs. As the bottom and top layers continue to recede, the Castlegate sandstone will continue to fall out, which is just as much a hazard as it is a means for getting new cool climbs. In fact, during my trip, we actually witnessed road crews cleaning up some fallen debris that had landed on the road. With that, I want to get back to some of my favorite climbs from the rest of the trip. Again, while I was here, I mostly stuck to problems V2 and below. One of my favorite areas, of course, was the Riverside area on the left fork, which features the angler boulder problem that I talked about earlier. 
There are also a number of other easy to intermediate problems next to each other where you can do the set routes or kind of mix and match starting areas and finishes. I also really enjoyed the boy size area on the right fork, which featured my second favorite problem of the trip called Chex Mix, which features some nice juggy pinches that you kind of throw up to to get to the top. This is also the area where I found a number of climbs that go up the crimpy mud cracks that cake over the sandstone. I also spent some time in the man size area where we found a ton of other easy climbs mixed in with some very hard ones. The friction was good, the rock quality was good, and the experience was just awesome. Again, though, there was not really a specific climbing feature that I found to be pretty uniform across the board. However, while I'm not sure it really affects the actual climbing very much, the color of the boulders is pretty striking. A majority of the boulders have an iconic two-toned striping pattern. While you can tell that the actual color of the grains is sort of light yellow to yellowish brown, there are these dark stripes and blotches that just cover the rocks. They actually make the rock look quite unique, and just perusing through a couple of the mountain project links or my photos, you can see this distinct coloration. From looking at it, I wasn't really sure what it was at first. It didn't really look like bedding planes to me, especially since the stripes were pretty irregularly spaced and not necessarily surrounding the entire boulder. What these dark marks really look like is scorch marks from a fire. Lo and behold, I found a few papers that talk about coal bed combustion causing scorching or even metamorphosis of the surrounding rock. This can occur from something natural like lightning striking, an exposed outcrop, or an ex accidental coal mine fire. Either explanation is not too far-fetched considering that before it was a bouldering mecca, Joe's Valley was home to a huge coal mine. As I described earlier, the Blackhawk Formation, which contains the shallow marine shales and mudstones below the Castlegate sandstone, also features a huge coal seam. This coal had been mined for over 100 years in what was called the Trail Mountain Mine, located just up the road from the Right Fork boulders. However, the mine closed down in 2001. As was described in a really well-made short documentary on Joe's Valley, which I will link in the episode notes, the closing of the Trail Mountain Mine made the surrounding area economically depressed. But the rise of climbing in Joe's has since given opportunity to the Orangeville and Castledale communities. However, in doing the research for this episode, I ran into a number of articles from a year or so ago about the old coal mine being repurchased and rebranded as Fossil Rock. The new owner of this coal mine said he wanted to reopen the mine in either 2020 or 2021. Aside from a few articles I saw written in 2019, I haven't seen anything else from the company climbing advocates such as the Access Fund, or other environmental groups, so I'm not really sure what the current status is. Regardless, I do want to express my concern over this mine potentially going back into action. 
Let's for a sec take away the climate change impacts of reopening a coal mine and look at the local environmental issues and health risks. Reopening the coal mine would mean coal trucks traveling up and down the right fork constantly. These coal trucks would be a nuisance because in a lot of cases, the coal is poorly handled and creates a lot of coal dust that pollutes the area where it is being mined and being transported. In fact, one of the hurdles that the coal mining company will have to get over is overturning the Oakland, California blockage on shipping coal overseas because Oakland doesn't want the potential environmental health risk of coal polluting the area around its wharf. Furthermore, the style of coal mining proposed is called longwall coal mining, which is used primarily at the end of a coal mine's life cycle. Essentially, what they want to do is dig underneath the coal seam and then knock the coal down into the mine shaft before hauling it back out. As you could probably imagine, there are some serious environmental risks with literally chipping away at a mountain from the inside. And look, I know I probably look like this young Bay Area dude who doesn't know the ins and outs of the coal industry or the Orangeville community. I get how this coal mine could seem worthwhile in terms of the jobs it could bring. But look, the environmental impacts would be devastating to the climbing community, the surrounding areas, and the globe. Also, I'm not really seeing anyone talking about this, and I would hate to see this fly under the radar. Although, I'm fairly certain that if there was a real danger of this mine reopening, the climbing community would be on it. If you know something about the status of this mine reopening, please feel free to reach out and I will update accordingly. With an area as beautiful and special as Joe's Valley, I can definitely think of some better economic opportunities that don't destroy the environment. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. I know it's been a bit since I've released an episode, but I'm trying to get back on the grind because I really do love doing this. Oh, if you like the podcast, first and foremost, tell all your friends about it. And then get yourself or whoever an official Rock Behind the Climb t-shirt or tank. That's right. I have merch, baby. The link is in the episode description as well as at the blog. With that, thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you on the next one. Jazzhammer out.